0: John chapter 18, which is on Church Bible, 10.086. So we're reading verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Amen. It would be great if you could uh, open
1: up in your Bibles uh, John chapter 18. You maybe don't have a Bible with us, that's fine. We've got loads of these turquoise church Bibles around the place and it'd be great to dig that out uh, if you can. 10.86 is our passage. Um, uh, Maybe you are here at, at church on the back of the... Uh, discover week of events at Cardiff Uni and Met. Uh, Uni have uh, run the Christian Union events week this last week and uh, if that's why you're here it's great that you are here. Thank you so much for for joining us and being with us. I know it was a a really encouraging week. I popped my head into uh, some of the events and was super encouraged to see what God was doing so uh, let's continue to pray for the ongoing fruit of that work. Today we're um, uh, going to be asking one very simple question. You may be a long-time member of Highfields, a first-time visitor, somewhere in between. Simple question we're going to ask. Is Jesus worth following? Is he worth following? Is he worth it? Over the last uh, several months, we've been listening a lot to Jesus Christ. We've been listening to his prayer, the greatest prayer ever prayed, I've claimed, listening to him speak as God the Son to God the Father. That was chapter 17. And it was a powerful prayer, hearing him pray for himself, for his disciples, and for us all today. Before that, for the previous three chapters, we've heard him teach what we call the upper room school of discipleship. We studied that before Christmas as he gave his last words, I suppose, to his disciples, preparing them for his soon departure. The next day he's going to die on the cross and then three days later rise again. What will it be like without Jesus physically on earth? Well, lots of things we learned then. We need to stay joined to Jesus like a branch is joined to a vine we need to be encouraged by the fact that we're given God's Holy Spirit who lives in us to continue Jesus' work uh, with us uh, and enables us to keep on witnessing for Jesus, even though there's great opposition and maybe even persecution for siding with Jesus because, look, Jesus died on the cross uh, and so those who side with him can expect a pretty rough treatment in this world that hated him. And uh, we've heard Jesus talk to us a whole load Uh, last month for the last several months and uh, I hope you found it as inspiring and as challenging as I have done over the last while but here's the question isn't Jesus all talk he's done a lot of talking to us in the last few months Uh, he's yes an inspiring teacher an inspiring preacher a wonderful prayer motivator in his words and we hear his words yes and that may have provoked us provoked in us a desire to follow him, a desire to live in the world but not of the world etc and to take on the gospel baton that the apostles they've died out but they've passed on to us and we want to keep on handing the gospel out. Maybe we've been inspired by Jesus' words and maybe we haven't. Uh, Maybe we haven't been inspired by the words. Maybe we feel the the world is too big and too scary. There are too many pressures out there. Maybe life feels a bit out of control. Is Jesus really worth following and committing our lives to, giving our lives to? Maybe we're not yet convinced he is worth following. Uh, Maybe if we're honest, the, the gain of following Jesus Christ, does it really offset the cost and the loss? that is involved in following Jesus. There will be a cost in following Jesus. Is he worth it? And maybe hearing his words, simply his words, hasn't yet convinced us. Well, if that is the case, I'm thrilled you're here today. Please come for the next several weeks as well, because the four chapters of speech, uh, chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17, give way to four chapters of action now, 18, 19, 20, and 21, as we look in on the deeds surrounding Jesus' trial, Conviction, crucifixion, resurrection and commissioning, and then his going back to heaven. These famous chapters that are called the Passion of the Christ, the passion narrative. Now the word passion isn't to do with Jesus' love for us. He's passionate. He is passionately in, in love with us. That's not why the passion word comes from. It comes from the Latin word to suffer. and there is an unbelievable amount of inhumane suffering, at the hands of the Roman military machine that absolutely knew how to make people suffer and wanted to humiliate them, to stop people following them and to crush out the movement that accompanied them. But guess what? That never happened. And there are billions of Christian believers throughout the ages who have followed this suffering, this Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we're going to witness four things that I pray very much and I long that would together... Make us see, yes, Jesus is worth it. He's worth following, if we were in any doubt, or wobbling. Maybe we are wobbling. He's totally worth following. Why? Firstly, because I'd like you to witness his willing initiative. That's the first lesson, the first aspect of Jesus' behaviour. Witness his willing initiative. Now, I've chosen those words carefully. The word witness here is important because we are witnessing the words of an eyewitness. John, Uh, not John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin, but John the Apostle, John, Jesus' friend, close friend of Jesus, who wrote down what he saw and what he heard that Jesus did as an eyewitness. And and he's unembarrassed about uh, being an eyewitness, is what he said in John 21. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's claiming to truthfully tell us what Jesus did. In John 20, he famously explains that he didn't say everything that Jesus did. Jesus did many more things that uh, got into the final cut of John's Gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Saviour King, long-awaited, the Son of God, God on earth, acting with God's authority, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, a new, brand new life that turns everything around for you. Now, John is claiming to be historically accurate. Though sometimes people read places like John 18 and the passion narrative of, of Jesus in John's Gospel and say, well, look, that's quite different in some ways to what we read in other Gospels. And maybe you know, there's an inconsistency there and that's really thrown us. Friends, I hope you won't be thrown because uh, here John is saying in John 20, look, Jesus did loads of stuff and uh, he doesn't feel the need to say it all because he knows the other Gospels are out there. He's wanting to emphasise a certain number of things that Jesus did do and say that point forwards to who he is. And uh, one of the things that we see as we work our way through uh, these chapters, particularly John 18, is um, we shouldn't be surprised if there are some little indications of eyewitness account that are just almost throwaway lines that don't move the argument onwards, but just assure us this is someone writing who really was there and he's included them in. Let me just kind of highlight a few. These are identified by not just Christian historians, by the way. So let's look at verse 1. When he had finished praying the long greatest prayer, verse 1, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, literally the Wadi En-Nar, it was a, a wadi, which is a, um, a kind of a, a crack of ground that during the torrential rainy season would fill with water, but otherwise it'd be dry. And it was 200 meters below the outer court of the temple. And guess what? If you go to Jerusalem, you will see the uh, the wadi en na, the Kidron Valley, that is most of the year dry, but in rainy seasons it's full with water. And there are other little specifics that we get in the, in the narrative. So later on in our passage, we read that Peter cut off the high priests. <laughs> Uh, servant's right ear. I mean, very specific—not just any ear, the right ear. Now, okay, you know, does that move the story onwards that much? Not particularly. And it also gives us the servant's name, Malchus. And uh, whenever names are given of characters, we get lots of names here, M- uh, Malchus, Annas, and uh, Caiaphas, as well as Peter and Judas, etc. Whenever those names are there, this is not just a generic, you know, statement of activities that might have taken place. Now these are historically verifiable things. The name is a bit like a footnote. And uh that's what's going on here. Also the fact that Peter is written up as having cut off this servant's ear. As well as it being so very typical of Peter, by the way, and if you've read the Gospels account, you'll know Peter is like, he has foot in mouth syndrome. He's constantly, you know, know, doing the thing that, you know, he shouldn't do because he's just, you know, hot tempered a lot of the time. He's about to deny Jesus three times, we're, we're told. So it's very typically Peter, but also, um, it's what some, um, historians call the criterion of embarrassment. If you've ever heard about that, I'm not sure if you've studied history before, the criterion of embarrassment is the sense that when you're reading a piece of ancient literature, or even modern literature, and something is in there that embarrasses the source, the likelihood is it's going to be true. Because you wouldn't make stuff up to make the source sound bad, because you're trying to persuade people of what you're saying. So uh, the criterion of embarrassment, now you wouldn't include in the story that Peter, an early leader in the, the first century church, cut off a bloke's ear. You would not make that up if it wasn't true. More evidence that this is an eyewitness account. Anyway, let's, let's uh, dive back into the passage. On the other side, so halfway through verse 1, on the other side there was a garden and he... And his disciples went into it. Elsewhere, in the other gospel accounts, this garden is called Gethsemane, the the, the garden of the oil presses, which is what Gethsemane means. And he, his disciples, went into it. Now, Judas, verse 2, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Let's slow down and think what John is saying. He is saying that Jesus willingly went to a favourite place, a favourite garden where perhaps they've sat and eaten before, prayed before, rested before, a favourite place, a sanctuary place, and Judas knows it, and he knows Jesus is going to try and catch him, and he goes there anyway, willingly initiating the direction. There's no reluctance on Jesus' part. He's not playing hard to catch, hiding away behind the bushes, under a cover of darkness. He's willingly, happily just going into a place, No, pulling the levers of power to get himself off the hook. Verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. You would carry those kind of things if you were late at night, which it seemingly is. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. So, friends, just let's pause again at the start and witness the willing initiative of Jesus. Jesus isn't having his arm twisted here. Come on, Jesus he's got him and he's going to throw him over to the, to the Romans or to the, to the Jewish leaders. You're not finding Jesus here reluctantly stumbling forwards through the narrative. Willingly, he's initiating every stage of the story. Now, he knows where this is going. He's going to the cross. He's totally, all the way through John's gospel, been in control of this. He has said on many occasions, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then suddenly, come John 12, halfway through the gospel account, he says, my time has come. The hour has come. He's totally in control of the timescales and the clock. Didn't do it reluctantly didn't accidentally die for us, bullied into dying for us. What a pathetic example, this dying man on a cross. It was mocked in the first century as much as it's mocked today. It's not a pathetic man dying on a cross. He willingly initiated every single stage of the salvation. Again, let's kind of step out of the passage and think about our context. Maybe we feel that life is out of control. That uh, maybe work is out of control, relationships are out of control, emails are out of control, family situations, the wheels in life seem to have fallen off. Friends, in the darkest valley, the Kidron Valley for Jesus, he's not out of control. He's holding the steering wheel throughout. It's not kind of being dual controlled he's been completely in control all the way through and he will never ever let go of the steering wheel I just find it so encouraging maybe in your life you feel like it's all out of control losing the plot he never loses the plot he's got the script in front of him and he's planning it all initiating it every turn he knows what's happening knowing what's going to happen verse 4 went out and asked them who is it that you want he's like running the show here witness his willing initiative friends you can trust him in whatever valleys we find ourselves stumbling through. Point one, witness his willing initiative. Number two, witness his glorious power. This is in verses uh, six, five to seven, that kind of time. So let's go back to verse two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. These are the Romans and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jewish leaders, in other words. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. So this is a quiet place, very still, and it's suddenly disturbed. But it's not uh, one or two policemen knocking on the door saying, can we have a quiet word, uh, please? <laughs> Read what John witnesses here. The word for detachment, Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment, literally a cohort, which uh, the ancient sources tell us could have been anywhere between 200 and 500 armed soldiers. That is like, that is pretty big, right? <laughs> that, like, that, he's, he's not doing things by halves here. Yesterday, um, we took our family out to Klankajkvau and uh, went to that lovely folk ha- museum where we can understand what it's like in the 17th century. And uh, uh, my son Owen uh, was able to kind of be dressed up as a... 17th century soldier in the, the roundhead uh, as part of the Civil War and was weighed down by all this uh, armour and with his massive spear in his hand, massive pike. Incredible armour. That's the kind of thing, and you've probably seen the image in your head of a, of a soldier with their kind of red plume on their head, red cloak. 200 at the minimum, conservative estimates say. Think riot police with masks and shields. Maybe if you can remember the Troubles in Northern Ireland, or perhaps some of us can more recently remember the riots in London 12, 13 years ago. Riot police barricading, Molotov cocktails flying, just violence, utter might. So you've got those on the one hand... And you've got this weird, unholy alliance between the, the, the chief priests and the, the Pharisees linking up. These kind of religious leaders with their, their beards and looking very kind of strict and, and, and religious. You think, is that all really necessary? We're just trying to find one person here, Jesus. Bit overkill. Again, let's kind of do a bit of background because uh, in Rome, um, it was all about exertion of authority. It was all about you being in your place. And if you dared step out of the line, you are crushed like a cockroach. Squash you down. Let's let's just show you who is in charge. Obviously, Rome is in charge. 200 minimum soldiers bearing down on Jesus. They just wanted to stamp out insurrection, infidels. You're completely out of here. That's why crucifixion was such a barbaric, shameful act. The text, though, is completely clear Jesus isn't being bullied around so let's just think about it in the blue corner we have 200 to 500 roman soldiers suited and booted in their in their in their finest swords clubs lanterns and so forth religious leaders with them the traitor Judas in the red corner 11 cowering disciples fearful afraid And then Jesus himself, who behind the scenes has been steering the wheel all the way through, controlling events. It's all been according to his father's plan. We've been singing about that. Look down again, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, totally omniscient. He knows it all. Understands it all and goes out. Initiating here at the point of his arrest, he's the one asking the questions. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Verse 5. I am he. Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asks, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. It's an almost comic scene. Did the Romans have the slightest idea who they were dealing with? Just the slightest hint, one minute, Rome's muscles are being on display, bearing down on this vulnerable man. Stumble or you die. Submit to Rome or you die. The next minute, the whole cohort, 200 to 500, flout their faces. I am he. Down they go. Like, wow, it's just incredible. What's taking place? What is going on went to see these kind of Roman soldiers tumble down like a load of dominoes? Like, what has happened? And how does it help us see that Jesus is worth following? That's my question, and how do we see it? Well, I think what's going on is, at this moment, it's as if the curtain is being lifted up on Jesus, just for a moment. Do you know what I mean by that? The curtain is just being revealed. When he became a man, he already has said that lots of his glory and uh, his majesty, he he, he didn't kind of parade. didn't parade it. He was kind of hidden and enrobed in, humility as as a man, as a servant, made in human, humble appearance as a man, as uh, Paul says in Philippians 2. But when the curtain is pulled back on Jesus, rather than the curtain being pulled back on the Wizard of Oz, if you know the story of the Wizard of Oz, where the curtain gets pulled back on the Wizard of Oz and it turns out he's all mouth. It's just one big kind of escapade to try to control people. He, He doesn't have it in him to do what he claims he can do. He's just a little old man with a big microphone. None of that with Jesus. When the curtain is pulled back on Jesus, his earthly ministry, most of the time it's been hidden. Occasionally he's revealed his glory. And uh, when he's done those various signs through John's gospel, he's revealed his glory and his disciples have put their faith in him as he's done various signs. But many people ignored it. Many people missed it, weren't there when he did those miracles. But if you had the ears to hear as he spoke, and as he acted, you would have heard him repeatedly say the phrase, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, of course, on the one hand, the phrase I am is simply a way of identifying you. It, it, Who's Dave Gobbett? Oh, I am. Ego Amy is the Greek, simply way of identifying you're the person who you're speaking about. But if you have the eyes to see, if you have the ears to hear, and lots of people who are reading John would know from their Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament is concerned, that the word, the phrase I am, is dripping with significance. Massive amounts of meaning here. Um, because the name I am was God's special name. That was uh, the way he revealed himself to Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, if you know your Bibles, If you don't, uh, Moses is called to lead a great mission of emancipation of the the Jews under uh, Pharaoh. They've been in slavery, but God calls Moses to set them free. He's worried. He feels ill-equipped. And he says... Who shall I say has sent me? And uh, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and they say to me, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Uniquely revealing himself as I am. I am the ever existent one, never beginning, never ending, like a burning bush constantly there not being consumed always and forever making keeping making keeping making keeping promises forever present in this world holding the levers of power holding the steering I am that is who god is i am god and there is no other isaiah 46 i am god there is none like me that is who god is at his name we bow to his name he's unique And so when he says, I am, when Jesus answers the question, who's this, you're looking for Jesus, I am. That revelation lifts up the curtain. This is none other. He's a man, yes, totally man, but he's God on earth. He's the God who's come to save and to secure salvation for all who call on him. He reveals his glorious power that's been hidden for so much of his life. 1946. Three youths get on a coach in Chicago. The back seat of the coach is a black man sitting there. And the youths taunt him. It's the wrong side of town for a black man to be sitting on a coach. This is way before Rosa Parks and and, uh, Martin Luther King. And they taunt him and they taunt him and they taunt him. Old man, black man, words that I don't repeat. And then the coach comes to a stop having sat there in silence time, after again, after again, he sits there taking the abuse. He walks down the aisle of the coach at the stop and uh, he uh, gives a business card to the three young people before he leaves. And On the business card it has the words, Joe Lewis, heavyweight champion of the world. (laughs) And they had no idea who they were dealing with all the way through. They thought he was this black old man in the wrong part of town. He was the greatest, the strongest man who they would ever meet in their lives and just took it on the chin. Didn't reveal his power like he might have done, but there was Jesus. They had no idea who they were dealing with. Maybe you have no idea who you're dealing with. You've been along to the, the events week and you've heard a few talks and you're intrigued. And Jesus is an interesting character, someone in history, Maybe I need to find out more. He is God on earth. And occasionally when we read his word, he reveals and lifts up the curtain his glorious power. One day, later on in the Bible, we're told that every knee will bow before him. Many of those knees will bow because people love him and worship him. the fact that we get to see him will, will fall at his feet, loving him. But others who have rejected him will be humbled and will be broken. What are we doing? Siding ourselves against the heavyweight champion of the world. At that point, that will be a shameful thing to do. So, friends, you may feel very small. You may feel life is out of control. But if you know Jesus, you know someone who is far, far bigger, far, far more glorious than you possibly could imagine and know. That's our second thing we're observing, and we need to press on. Time is flying by. Witnesses willing initiative, witnesses glorious power. Number three, witness his tender care. And we're going to pick up the story again in verse seven. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? He's moving the story on. He's not hiding, he's happily initiating this. Jesus of Nazareth, they told him. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. You can imagine them trembling again, having just picked themselves up. Not that word, not I am, I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. That's a quotation from John chapter 6, verse 39. Initially, I missed this when I read it first time. As I've thought about it this last week, I've been amazed by the tender care of the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. He's not thinking about Number one, trying to protect himself. And uh, we get that from two gifts that this passage concludes us with. And we're going to think about these very briefly as our time begins to wrap up. Two gifts that we get. First gift um, we get in verse 9. Have a look down. This happened. Look, He says, let them go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me now this is something that we've seen over the last several weeks that before God made the world he gave a people to his son the father gave some people to his son and said go find and save my people and uh, Jesus saying I've not lost any of those the ones you've given to me I've kept close to me I'm holding them in my hands in my heart see, Jesus not only is our great saviour, wonderful saviour, only saviour, he's our only protector. How good is that? He doesn't just save you. He's not just interested in getting you into church, getting bums on seats, yeah, okay, I'll become a Christian. No, he's not just concerned about that. He wants to, he wants to protect you so that you, you stay following him until you see him. And that is his absolute commitment. I have lost none of those you've given to me. He's a good shepherd who protects his people utterly. He's not like, yeah, you've got to do a bit of work here. No, he'll do all the heavy lifting in salvation. He's not going to try and protect his back. No, he's like, no, I'll, no, leave them with me. You let me, take me, let them go. It's all about me here. I'm just, I don't, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to go and do the deed here. Just let them go. And friends, if he'll keep us safe, at his greatest point of need, then you can surely trust him to keep you safe. Now, he is through death, post-resurrection, ascended in heaven at his Father's right hand. He will surely keep you safe. At a time where he might have been selfish, he just said, no, just take me, let them go. That illustration on the screen pictures it. You know, in John 6, he says, No one will be snatched from my hand. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for my sheep. I hold on to you tightly. Just think about that. That picture of being in Christ, close to Christ, in his heart. That tells us that if, if something is going to get to you, it's got to get through Jesus first. You're in him, you're in his hand. In his heart. He's not going to relinquish that. Oh, go on then. Someone attack. No, he's going to hold on to you. And if, if he knows that this is something that you need to go through, he will absolutely help you through that. But it only goes through him first. What comfort that is. The tender care of Jesus. It only goes through Jesus first. He signs it off. Before he'll ever let you go through anything. And he'll help you throughout. Which is not to say life is suddenly easy if you follow Jesus. For some of you, I know life is anything but easy. It's it's bewilderingly hard. But he's with us. And he will care for you as our strong and kind saviour. And protector and shield. So will he witness his tender care? That's our third lesson and our time is almost gone. But we do need to see this last point because it's another gift that he refers to. Will he witness his courageous obedience? And we could have spent all our time here but we've just got to observe some, some quick lessons. Let's look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, the servant's name was Malchus, no Peter that's not how the kingdom advances not via a sword that was the trouble of uh, you know, the medieval uh, approach to Christianity with the crusades that's sadly the trouble with the advancement of of um, Islam with the kind of desire for a kind of a sharia law model where you obey or you die no that's not how god advances kingdom that is not his way His kingdom is advanced by the sword of the Spirit as people voluntarily submit to Jesus as their saviour. Put your sword away. Verse 11, part 2. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The second thing the Father has given. So not only has the Father given the Son a group of people to go save and a people to protect, the Father has given the Son a cup. What does a cup mean? It's a massive word in the Bible. The cup Sometimes a cup of God's blessing, we talk about the Lord's Supper, drinking a cup of God's blessing. Usually in the Bible, the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord refers to God's wrath, his anger that needs to be drunk. So here's uh, Isaiah chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl the cup of staggering so this is speaking about this passage when the people of israel were in exile they were being judged by god for how they treated him and they were away from their land in a foreign land babylon and uh, and god is speaking to them there about where salvation will be found and where rescue will be found and he's saying you have drunk of my wrath You've you've consumed my wrath. And, and, And the picture is of a cup. Imagine a great cup. And in the cup is God's response, his anger at all our wrongdoing, our wrong thinking, our wrong loving. It's all in this cup. And individuals have their own cup, I suppose, and the, the, the choice is we drink the cup and to drink the cup is a bitter, toxic cocktail to experience God's judgment which for Israel meant being separated away from their home for a generation. For us today it would mean drinking this cup of God's wrath, God's anger at how we've treated him. Is just anger at how we've treated him and and drinking it and draining it and being separate from him forevermore. That's what drinking the cup would be. But when Jesus came, what does he say? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? How on earth should Jesus be given a cup to drink? What has he done wrong? That he should drain this poisonous, toxic judgment of God at him? No, not at him but at us, at anyone of his people who turn and who trust in him. He says, I'll drink their cup for them. Give me your cup. We'll pour it into my cup. And he has a cup. <laughs> like, Give me your cup. I'll, 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 take, I'll take all those dregs of God's right justice that should have been on us for the way we've treated him, the way we've spoken, the way we've thought of him in his world accrued debt. It's all in the cup. And he says, I'll drink it. I'm not going to take, no one's taking this cup away from me. I will drain God's righteous justice. All the wrong, all the bitterness, all the anger that God rightly has at what we've done. I'll drain it, says Jesus. Not because he needs to, because he wants to, because he loves us. What courage. We have no idea how how bitter and how toxic, how ghastly drinking that cup was. Maybe you've been forced to take some medicine that just turned your stomach. This is just the most horrific medicine you could ever imagine. But he will say, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll drain it. That you don't have to, that you might have life. Friends, will you witness these wonderful things about Jesus? You know, It's possible to seal this and to keep walking away. We've missed over it in the passage, but repeatedly we read of Judas the traitor. Judas the traitor. There's no hiding that fact. Someone saw and someone kept walking away. But many others saw and were convinced. Here is one whose willing initiative and glorious power And tender care and courageous obedience to his father to complete the work he's been given has led to saving and protecting faith that leads people to trust in Jesus and know that he is for them and has got them tight in his hand. I wonder which of those you are. We're going to spend a moment in quietness in a moment and I'd love you just to pray and say, Lord, forgive me for thinking... Is it really worth following Jesus? Is he really worthy? Lord Jesus, thank you that you're so worthy. Forgive me for the ways I just shrink you down. Help me to lift you up and see how mighty and how glorious you are, much, much, much bigger than I ever first thought. And love you and live for you. So, a moment of quiet, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word. We're humbled by the ministry of your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that throughout his life and ministry and throughout our lives, he has never once let go of the steering wheel. In the darkest hour, through the deepest valley, at his time of need, he continually held the steering wheel. He was in full control. Lord, thank you so much for the comfort that gives us. In our deepest valley, our darkest hour, Our time of need, you hold the steering wheel. You can be trusted, Lord. Help us to keep trusting you. Thank you for your glory. Thank you that you're so much bigger. Oh Lord, on a Sunday, when we forget or try to shelve the burdens of each day, you seem bigger and seem better, but we know when Monday comes or later on Sunday comes, everything floods back in, you shrink back down. Lord, help us to see you as glorious, a glorious savior, a powerful savior, a strong savior, and a kind savior, a tender savior who will take the hits for us that we may go free, who will protect us and hold us in your hands. Lord, thank you. Give us the strength to keep trusting for another week, Lord. Sometimes just another day seems hard enough. Give us the strength. Help us to know you're for us forever. Thank you for your willingness to drain the cup that we might be free and no blessing. And we pray, Lord, for those here today who don't yet know you. Pray as we and they look closely at your word these weeks. Would they see more of Jesus and why he is so supremely worth following. We pray in his
0: name. Amen.